Leading multi-platform storytelling. Welcome to another Story Labs podcast. For more info, go to storylabs.us. Thanks. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you. Uh, uh, thanks for having me here. Uh, it's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here, and um, I'm excited by all the projects. Congratulations to everybody who is a part of the lab. And um, what I wanted to kind of share today is something, uh, kind of give you a, an arc of some of the work that I've done and a, a sense of a narrative across it. Um, I've become very interested in this idea of um, story as a research and development tool, uh, both in terms of enriching the stories that I tell, but then also looking towards uh, new business models coming out of that, and then also um, just a freeing aspect of being able to collaborate with people uh, across various um, targets, you know, whether it be who I formerly call the audience, they're, I consider them to be collaborators, uh, to uh, different team members that I have and new emerging roles that come out of that, and then just the ability for me to enrich the stories that I tell and make them more 21st century enabled. So, so today I'm going to kind of talk about a, a couple different projects that I've worked on and um, you know, if anybody has any questions as I go, you know, please let me know. Um, I, I feel like uh, what's really great about a lab environment and um, what I kind of thrive on in terms of the work that I do is, is really driven by questions. And I think that there's a real obsession towards answers. You'll probably feel that as you go through the lab this week, wanting to really have answers. But I think what's incredibly freeing is, um, is leaving yourself open to those questions. Um, and I think the reason that I am um, so driven to the idea of research and development is I'm a writer. Have, um, I've written screenplays, television, all kinds of things. And anybody that knows that writes, it's, it's all about the rewrite. And so a lot of the ideas of research and development within story is kind of taking that and, and, and giving stories a chance and, and, and a way to develop more fully and richly. Uh, so the first thing I wanted to kind of share was something that I did in 2006 and 2007. I made a, um, a movie. It was my second feature film. It was called Head Trauma. Very uh, low budget, $126,000. Uh, I tricked myself into making it, saying that it would only take me 28 days, and it took 90 days over the course of about a year. Um, but uh, it was a very ambitious project. And um, what I'm going to kind of skip some of the the traditional aspects, um, because probably what was most exciting was the way in which I was kind of uh, embracing different interactive elements and things that I was doing along the line. Um, if you look um, there, it says interactive comic. I had a, a really nice kind of graphic novel approach that we had done with the film while I was actually still scripting it. So we put it together and we put it online and I worked through it and I used it as this uh, kind of inspiration towards style, inspiration towards themes. Uh, uh, later it would actually be really valuable because um, it combined with a number of other aspects helped me to land about $500,000 worth of services from Skywalker Ranch to, to mix the film. So the digital assets were valuable in a variety of ways. They were valuable because they were helping the team to understand the vision. They were valuable because they showed a passion towards storytelling in a different way at that time. And um, I, I think sometimes this type of work 
uh, a lot of people will think about it as promotional and, and marketing extensions, but what's really valuable is in, in the way uh, I've been able to use it to rehearse with actors, I've been able to use it to secure interesting strategic partnerships. So in the case of the interactive comic, that came during the actual scripting of the film. Um, and it told uh, one particular story, but I left all these Easter eggs within it. So um, it was a rich experience that kind of kept giving over the course of a couple of years. So, um, and I'll explain how it kind of evolved, but initially it started. And uh, within my first film, I have a deep lo- love of comics. And some of the comic stuff in, in the second film, uh, Head Trauma, was actually done by S.R. Bissett, who worked a lot with Alan Moore, um, co-created Constantine and Swamp Thing. And it turned out he was a fan of the first movie that I had made. So um, I was able to kind of tap him and do some really interesting things with the comics. But um, the just, you know, so I, I was doing that interactive comic at a time where I was actually scripting the film. Uh, and when, when we went and we made the film, I just... To, couple backstory elements on it so you get a full context. Uh, self-distributed by choice, had its world premiere at the LA Film Festival. From there, I took it right out to 17 screens theatrically throughout the United States um, and then rolled it out on DVD myself, did well with that. And then um, basically, I think where it got really interesting for me was when I decided to kind of reconceptualize the film. And what I mean by that is I started to do a kind of a mixture of, and I'm going to talk right now about the, the live events and some of the mobile elements. Um, to give you an example of what I mean, uh, the, the film is a psychological horror film. It's a build off of two things. Uh, it's autobiographical. It deals with a horrible car accident that I was in, head-on collision with garbage truck, went through the windshield, lost part of my memory, uh, was in intensive care for five days. And then the other part is, stems from I had uh, co-created a show at Fox, went all the way through the pilot, and I felt like I went through the five stages of grief. Um, and so I combined those two things, horrific car accident, loss of memory, and the five stages of grief. Um, and um, basically what I wanted to do with these live events, and it's important to note when I went to do the live events, there was like a minimum guarantee I was getting for them. There was a higher ticket price, and I was able to do them in museums and universities and things along those lines. So, And for me, it started away from the actual screen. So uh, as an example, when somebody would come to see the show or come to experience the film, uh, this was in 2007, uh, we wrote software that would ring all the pay phones up and down the block. So as they were making their way to the cinema, the phones would be ringing, and if they stopped and they picked up the phone, they would hear this strange, fragmented kind of conversation and weird sound design and these things that were kind of putting them into the, the mood of the film without them knowing, and there were some subliminal things that we had, we had put into that. Um, and then they would kind of come around the corner and they would encounter like a street preacher who was preaching fire and brimstone, And uh, he was handing out these small comics, which I took the interactive comics that we had done online. And for anybody that knows uh, Jack Chick or those types of comics, they're small kind of religious propaganda comics that you can find in truck stops or in phone booths. And uh, they're they're actually really kind of crazy comical and scary all at the same time. Uh, And so I took those, and, and within the comics pages, we laid all these ciphers and clues. So if somebody took the time to actually look... Uh, at the comic through, uh, you know, towards the light, they would see these different things that we had embedded into the comic. 
And then when they actually came into the theater, um, they were, uh, when they were watching the movie, they were encountered by um, these, uh, uh, we had people who were dressed up and, and scared them, quite literally, you know, very William Castle-esque. You know, they would emerge from the audience and startle people and scare people. And mainly, it's a little hard to see here, but there is one primary nemesis within the film that is a hooded figure. So we did some really, that's actually from one of the live uh, performances where he's choking her. Uh, and when they would make their way in and they sit down, um, before the film would even start, I, I did this thing where I put up a, a screen that said, you know, whatever you do, do not text or call this number, danger, danger, danger. And of course, everybody in the audience did. <laughs> and, uh, and then as the movie went, we, we wrote software that allowed uh, people to experience a meta-narrative. So um, the character, it was all built to scale, so the nemesis in the film uh, and would push a meta-narrative to everybody that was in the audience. So their phones would start ringing all throughout the performance of the, of the film, and, and then we would interconnect certain people to each other's numbers which, once we had them, and then we did some interesting things in some of the shows where we actually put secret things onto each person's phone, and then they were encouraged to find the other person. And so I was always kind of experimenting with these ideas of what narrative was and what a film was and what a film going experience was and sometimes clashing up against you know the desire of a passive watching with an audience that maybe wanted to be a little more engaged and always trying to see you know what worked and then kind of dissect that and, and come back and look at the, you know what 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 was uh, effective and what wasn't so they're getting this meta narrative and then at a at um, at a certain point uh, after they left the film uh, they went back home, and for the ones that took the comic and looked on the back, it said, do you want to play a game? And then at that point, what would happen would be uh, they would uh, type in their phone number into the, uh, into the site. It would prompt them. And then as they were going, uh, we wrote software that would automate this, and it was all design, sound design, built to scale. So they'd start going through the comic, and then their phone would ring. They'd pick up the phone, and it would be this, the nemesis from the movie, and he'd start asking them these questions, you know, uh, you know um, things like, I, I know what you did. Uh, some were statements, some were questions. But uh, depending upon how somebody responded, their voice would activate video or audio on the site, and so they'd start moving through an experience on the site without touching it just by voice activation. And then at a certain point, uh, the character would ask them to say something, you know, tell them some dark secret about themselves um, because the whole movie deals with repressed memories and things along those lines. And so whatever they said into the phone, we would actually um, loop back over their computer speakers. And it would totally freak them out, and they'd start trying to exit, and so we built like a fake exit box. So they're clicking on that, and we know they're hitting that instance, and we deliver a message back to the phone that says, you know, where do you think you're going? We're not finished yet. At which point we would dump them into conversations with everybody else that was experiencing that at the same time. So that little arc there is like it goes from what effectively is a... Um, a communal experience in a theater to a mobile to an online back to a communal experience. So always kind of looking at interesting ways to kind of play with that. And what's interesting from an R&D perspective is I took that technology and then licensed it many times over to other parties. So I used it, prototyped it with what I did here, and then took it and actually licensed it to a number of Fortune 50 companies. So um, 
I think that's one particular example of what I was doing there. Then, then I did a lot with playing with like various remixes that had elements that were hidden within them and ciphers, and so people were able to kind of go through and unlock things collectively, collaboratively. And I ran an alternate reality game, and, and I think in some ways my hoax-driven phase of my career is behind me, or at least I think so at this point. Uh, the, my first film was kind of a little bit hoax-driven, Lord of the uh, um, uh, War of the Worlds kind of based story line and then um, uh, for this alternate reality game I did around this series uh, I had the the movie was going to be licensed by Warner Brothers and I knew that they wouldn't promote the film so I built a four week alternate reality game and the alternate reality game told a story about a guy whose fiance went missing and effectively one day on his doorstep he gets this package and within the package is all this media and the media captures surveillance of his future wife and just weird kind of subliminal things all in between and he goes to the police but the police don't believe him they think that you know she's run off with another man and so he pushes it all out to the social web and says I need your help and so over four weeks we had um, two and a half million people participating within it we had a um, uh, it created a whole bunch of blowback when people realized that it wasn't real, which was interesting. And then in addition to that, it um, the, the most amount of time people spent was kind of taking these elements and doing all these amazing screen grabs of them as they collaboratively tried to figure out what it meant and if it would lead to where this woman was. Um, I think... Uh, that alternate reality game I did with one friend and myself, tremendous amount of work out of, uh, out of my basement for like 500 bucks. Uh, but it had a tremendous reach and impacted the various other elements of what I was doing. But at the same time, I thought, I'm not going to use it as just a marketing promotional thing. I started to use it as a, a development tool towards a whole new property that I wanted to do, a whole new story world that I wanted to tell. And so I thought, well... Why can't I use Hope is Missing as a way to kind of test things and see how people interact with these other story elements? And so out of that came um, what effectively would lead to uh, a feature film, which is called Hope is Missing, which went through the Sundance Screenwriters Lab, and uh, a story world component, which I'm going to walk you through, which is, uh, which is called Pandemic. But a lot of the design elements that I started to think about were kind of I started thinking about this idea, and this is always something that's at odds, you know, where it's like auteur theory meets co-creation, you know, and it's always, they're always hitting up like this. And how do you have some degree of filtering or some degree of value so it doesn't just all become uh, muddled in some way, or the the property, um, the, the quality of the overall world that you're building is brought down in some particular way by people being passionate, but maybe not having the tools or the skills or the ability. And so I, I started to think about uh, co-creation and participatory culture almost like a kind of a bullet hole in glass right I had a singular vision for what I wanted to tell in that story but then I wanted it to crack out and use glass as a metaphor because uh, in terms of the software development and things I've done in that world I'm, I'm very interested in like how you can push out for a beta launch or an alpha launch and you can see whether it breaks or not and then people feed back so I was interested in this this kind of uh, theory where I would kind of push it out and, and, and encourage them to break it so I could see what worked or what didn't work with it. And so an example with that was um, I started, and I'm, uh, at least for, for these first two properties, I've been very interested in like how can I pe- put people in the shoes of the protagonist? How can I make the experience more engaging? And so with um, 
hope is missing and the pandemic kind of story world that surrounds it, it's all about a uh, strange sleep virus that only affects adults and leaves the youth to their own devices. So it's very much a Lord of the Flies tale uh, set in a, you know, what effectively is in a quickly emerging post-apocalyptic world. Um, and in order to do that, the feature film comes in 90 days into the outbreak. But I decided I wanted to do something where pandemic would start at the initial outbreak. It would start when it was first happening. And so what I wanted to do was kind of play with this idea that I could have almost like a Jim Jarmusch night on earth with all this point of view and these perspectives from all over the world as this thing was unfolding. And so uh, one of the early kind of tests and things that we did was a, a closed kind of beta around a, um, around a simple app. Well, maybe not so simple, uh, but it was a, an augmented uh, app that was built for Android. And effectively, what I wanted to do was make it so people could step into this world. So effectively, the way the app worked, it was, it was driven primarily by Google Maps. It was a locational-based application. And what it did was uh, people would be able to scavenge for supplies, uh, look for other survivors, and then when nightfall uh, fell, they had to make shelter for themselves. And so with this, it, it would tap into like Google Maps, uh, there would be concentrated areas of where the infection was, and then what we did was we wrote some very uh, we wrote some uh, software that took advantage of some open source technologies that would allow us to stitch a panoramic right so somebody could do photos or they could shoot video, and then on the back end we would stitch it together so then they would play off the compass of the phone um, you know so when you move the phone, you would see this whole space, this whole room, and then we would lay in augmented elements over top of it, and the augmented elements would be assets that they could create and trade with other people, or they would be story elements that they would find. And then in different places, we would have these rabbit holes, uh, kind of similar to a Katrina marking, where they would go through and they would mark the buildings. Um, you could dive through into another space. Now, I wanted to play with this idea of where, where people were actually able to create these spaces themselves. So we did a, a, a beta where I invited in some of the audience that I had. We ended up, um, I think it was with, uh, by the time, close to 50 or 60,000 downloads of it. So we had a bunch of people who were kind of participating in it. And then I became really interested in how I could collect various data to see where things were going on. This represents a snapshot of a, a day's worth of activity with the application. And what people could do is they, they started to collect, they started to create their own nests. So we had, I guess, about almost like 3,000 nests that were created by different people. Some were horrible. Others were really cool. Uh, some people would actually break into abandoned spaces and make it seem like it was more post-apocalyptic. But um, out of that, um, I was doing some really interesting things where uh, I was able to collect all this data. It was, all, it was always opted in, but you know, I had the GPS data from the phone. I had the make and the model of the handset. I had the operating system of the handset, uh, email address, phone number, and the amount of usage that they would have with it. So I started to gather all this really interesting data, which then I would use and, uh, as certain things. I, I'm, I'm really into this idea of personalization, the idea of how data can be used within storytelling. And I'll, I'll show how this kind of evolved into the next thing that I was working on. Um, I think with, 
with this and some of the challenges that you come into is having to be very clear about how you're using things, uh, how you're tapping into potentially third-party services, making sure that if you're going to do anything that collects data or anything that's going to make use of an API by somebody else, that you're very clear about um, how you're using it and what you're doing with it, when you purge it. There's all kinds of things to kind of technically consider. Um, but I became really interested in this idea of how this data could be used because I believe that through contextual storytelling, you could start to develop like a media social graph and be able to discover more interesting media or things that surrounded these worlds. So you could discover films or you could discover recipes or you could discover locations or you could discover just these amazing things and, and, and kind of as though you were laying this discovery layer over across your regular social graph or the people who are participating in this world. And then I became very interested in this idea of story detection, you know, like how could it go from one device to the next and the story has awareness so it knows where you left off, right? So then when you pick it up in the next place, it puts you in touch with a bunch of different people who are socially at the same point in the story as you are. Because the biggest challenge that you'll face with a lot of the design you guys do is replayability. You know, the, especially um, a, a lot of early design will tend to be very linear. How can you break that linear structure of it? And so with, uh, with the data and a lot of the stuff that I've been experimenting with, I've been trying to find ways to give a replayability or be able to play down and follow somebody that you're interested in and, and try to figure out interesting ways to kind of, you know, navigate these worlds. So taking that and moving forward, I kind of evolved the idea of what I was going to do with Pandemic. And Pandemic 1.0, it's called 1.0 for a reason. Um, it's modeled off of software releases. And so the first version of it was uh, done this past year, past January at Sundance. It was an official selection of the um, of the uh, Sundance Film Festival, uh, and it, w it it took place in New Frontier. And what's interesting is New Frontier is an amazing new opportunity for the type of work that you guys are developing. There's a big uh, focus and a big shift within a number of the large festivals at this point towards giving more of an immersive experience within the festival context and an interest in terms of how storytelling is evolving. So not only does New Frontier celebrate new you know, basically new format, uh, new uh, adventures in storytelling. Uh, the Sundance uh, just kicked off this October, one of their first new labs in, I guess, about 30 years, which is all about this type of storytelling. It's called the New Frontier Storytelling Lab. And the idea is that the, the festival is looking at what the next mile, you know, the, the, they, they came of age off of independent film, and now they're looking at how they can be a voice moving forward into as story evolves so um, it took place at the festival, and I was interested because there, there was over 40,000 festival participants. Some of the challenges with design into a live environment like that is there's a psychology around the festival where people will purchase tickets. They expect to do things that are ticket-driven. Um, and also you have an amazing amount of things that are happening all at the same time. So some of the challenges that I saw from the development of Pandemic 1.0 which I kind of knew going in was just going to be how to cut through the clutter of what was happening in and around a festival environment and the best way to kind of um, try to build or engage people who are more used to going to cinemas as opposed to maybe kind of getting out and doing uh, some different things in and around the festival environment. So the, the construct of this was uh, around 120 hours. People had 120 hours to stop a pandemic. And basically what that means is um, 
that over that time we took uh, it was a mixture of like a design that involved like there, there, there's a high level of kind of conceptual art elements within this, me mining certain themes that I'm interested in terms of the story, and then also just experimenting with user interactions. And, uh, and then there were some geolocational elements and also uh, some scavenger-based mechanics. So in this particular instance, uh, people were working online, and I'll explain how. Um, and together they were working with people who were on the ground in Park City. Because one of the themes for the festival that year was being there. So I started playing with that idea of what it meant to be there. You know, and I wanted to see how I could you know, um, design something that maybe would have that global to hyper-local and back. A- at the same time, pandemic, because I'm, I'm fascinated by this. I love genre work, but I'm also very interested in transformative things and social change. And a lot of times... No knock against it, but social change can be too serious for its own good. I guess it's supposed to be. It's social change. But uh, like a lot of the serious games and a lot of the different things can be a little too serious. Um, So um, I modeled some of the underlying things under the genre work that were predicated on two core concepts. Um, I had two partners, Medic Mobile, who does mobile services in third world countries to track births and to track um, uh, disease outbreak using primarily SMS, but other mobile techniques. And then uh, I teamed up with a group called Freedom Lab, which are out of Amsterdam, and they look at solving wicked problems and look at connected societies and how to model and and do things within a connected world. And um, there were two core design principles that were at the base of this. One was, how does morality change in the face of knowledge over time? And the other was, when you have two different people who have valuable knowledge for each other, but don't know each other, how do they connect? So I built those two things into the core of this and, used, and collected data that then was later used to inform how things spread socially online, looking at certain um, uh, applications in terms of public health messaging. And, um, and now as I go forward, I'm actually working with the Wellcome Trust in the UK and a number of scientists to develop out core elements of this so we can model and look at how things actually spread socially. And then actually taking some uh, real pandemic data and underlying it and bringing it back into the gaming context of what we do. So with that being said, the construction of this, and I think in a lot of ways when I look at this, I purposely went with a lot of things out of the gate with it. I think I could have effectively done this maybe with a fourth of what I have here. Um, But I wanted to try it and I wanted to see what resonated more than other parts. And I I wanted to kind of build it and, and, and kind of test um, it's a balance of things, and I think this is something that I really like in the design and the work, or, or gets me excited, is a balance of like not just physical and virtual, but tactile too. I think a lot of people get into digital things, and they forget that you can have really amazing tactile elements. And in fact, tactile elements become very valuable in terms of the scarcity of those and the value that they give to somebody when they actually encounter them or achieve them or whatever it is. So within this design of the story world of pandemic, um, I had these core elements that I was working on. And I'll kind of just run through these really quickly, and then I'll kind of break them down as I go through the rest. There was a short film that sat at the center of the experience um, that told a story about a boy and a girl whose mother is coming down with the virus, uh, the sleep virus, and she's transforming, and they don't know what to do. And they're at a point where they have to make a decision. Do they leave her there to die? Do they kill her? Do they 
bring her with her. And so it's this kind of emotional uh, element. But I purposely also left it very ambiguous, very open. Because there's a certain thing, and I know like for some of the projects here, there's a concern of like, how do you put these things out into the world without pulling away and taking too much of the story away from it, stealing the thunder from it, taking away from the discovery element of it. And so what I wanted to do with that short film was kind of devise a style guide. I wanted to test certain elements. And what's interesting, out of going and doing Pandemic in in Park City, I came back and my co-writer and I, we wrote three additional drafts of the screenplay based upon interactions and things that I was playing with thematically in this real-world test scenario, Um, which I think is valuable because, to me, it, it is only strengthening the narrative, strengthening the world that I'm building. There was a physical book that we made because I'm very interested in certain aspects of this, the app and the online components. There was a very strong digital touch, but I wanted to have something that when people encountered it, they could flip through a book and find meaning within that. There were a number of really cool kind of comics that we did in short fiction elements that we put together. There were these outbreak stories that came from different places, and I worked with a number of up-and-coming science fiction writers and a number of very well-known comic book artists to do that. Um, I'm fascinated by Connected Toys and have been working with them for a while. The idea of how a toy can become a, a distribution point, can become a connected storytelling point. And so we had a, a certain, uh, we mined a certain theme in the story, and I'll explain that when I get to that. Uh, we had online, mobile, and some urban game elements that we were doing. Set up a number of secret locations, uh, m- many of which were very effective. Uh, one was, for instance, an abandoned car. Uh, the abandoned car sat like in a back alley. It had a note on the 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 taped to the side of the door and the door was left open and said going for gas heading north if you find this you know please save so and so or whatever and then inside the car we laid all these props we put all the stuff in and then we encouraged people um to leave things but we had no idea what they would leave they started leaving all these messages for other people within the car so every time i would come back to the car it was constantly changing it was evolving, you know, and I thought that that was a, it was a lot of fun to kind of look at that and be able to role play with that and see that set make its way. But then what we also did with those secret locations was we had 20 actors who were in Park City because we took a layer of design over the top and said, we are going to tell a story that assumes that a strange sleep virus has broken out at Sundance. And so we are going to tell this alternate story. So I got 20 actors, scripted them all with Twitter. So each one had 100 tweets. That was their arc. And then what we would do is we'd go and do all these fragments with the people. We would shoot stills with them. We would shoot video with them. We would make use of these secret locations. And we told uh, and experimented with this fragmented storytelling method, you know, where it was kind of like all these different elements were launching in different ways. And I'll explain how data kind of connected it all together. Uh, We had a mobile application. I'll walk you through that. We had an online element. And then all throughout... Park City, we hid 50 golden objects and uh, 50 bottles of water. And I'll explain how that worked. And then we had a data viz component to it as well. So the uh, short film, uh, I was really interested in finding a way to day and date it. Um, so I did it through Fearnet, which I guess got us to about maybe 20 or 20 some million homes in the US. Uh, did it through the YouTube screening room in conjunction with Sundance. Uh, The one I was the most excited about was the implementation into the mobile app that Sundance had. I had to work very hard to get it in there, but it was really cool when it was there because you would see like YouTube and Facebook and Twitter and then Pandemic. 
you know, so it was this really great point of entry where somebody could initiate right off of the app for the scheduling app for the festival. And then it was in theaters uh, through the actual um, festival itself. I think uh, what was interesting about the day and date thing, I think it worked really effectively in terms of getting the film out and people being able to see it. Um, it took a risk in terms of alienating it uh, to certain other festivals later because of the path that I took. But that didn't necessarily matter as much to me because there were things that were actually hidden within the short that worked for it. The short was constructed very much in an ambiguous fashion. It was meant to be a style guide. Um, in fact, all of this is kind of working towards a style, style guide and a format guide and a Bible. Um, we are doing, uh, to, through media in Europe, we've received funding, my producers from the UK, we've received funding to shoot serialized content in different territories, similar to what I established here, where, where we will use local... Uh, writers, uh, directors, producers, and actors, um, because I was very interested in this idea of these initial outbreak stories and how could I format transmedia into a co-production model and place it into different territories. So, um, with this, uh, you know, the uh, the film, uh, you know, sets the tone. Effectively, it's a tonal piece. You can see it on YouTube. It's on. Might be a little hard to to see here, depending upon connection speed, but you can see it on YouTube. Um, we had an online part, and this is where it gets into the global down to hyperlocal, right? There were assets that we put online that people were able to kind of remix. And when they would remix those assets, it would unlock a golden object or unlock a phone, okay? When it unlocked a golden object, it would give the geo-coordinates of where that place was. When you look down here in the blocks... I'm fascinated by the idea of replayability and, and the idea of a timeline and, and how time works within these projects. Uh, the attempt in this incarnation was to be able to track the activity of what was going on. Because not only are people out looking for things, but what we did was uh, Gowalla, which is kind of like Foursquare. Does anybody not know what that is in the room? Okay. Uh, it's, a, it's a kind of a geolocational service. You can check into a certain location. Like, I'm here at... Fountain, what is this called? Fountaindale Inn, or um, the mayor of Fountaindale Inn, or whatever. The more times you go somewhere, you can check in. Facebook has it as a Facebook places kind of thing. It's a geo kind of thing. Um, so, um, what I wanted to do with that and the idea of this global to hyper local is there were elements that were happening in the real world. People checking in, for instance, to the various theaters that were in Park City, we made each theater a city. So any time that somebody went into the Egyptian theater, they were in London. And then when they would check in, it would have a, uh, we modeled it so it would have an effect on the spread of the virus. So like all over Park City, if you looked at a map, you would see the virus was spreading based upon people checking in. Well, a counter to that was anybody that tweeted with a hashtag pandemic 11, that would save one life, right? Anybody that found a bottle of water, that would save 100,000 lives. You know, anybody that found a golden object, it had a health property to it as well. And so what these little blocks of activity were based on, and if you rolled over one, you could sit there and watch and you'd see all the activity going across in real time. It represented somebody checking in one of the items that they found, somebody unlocking something on the site, uh, you know, the number of tweets as they were coming in, comments, all kinds of things that we were mining. But we wrote an algorithm... Um, and we built a contextual storytelling engine where all those real-world elements were then triggering a five-act structure. 
right? So remember where I talked about the tweets? You'd have 100 tweets for a character. Well, dependent upon how the story was moving, you know, like the real world interactions, how many of these things were unlocked or were found, the story would accelerate or slow. Characters would die or they would be elongated. And it was all based on real world interactions and online interactions. So that five act structure was based on everything is fine, uh, the feeling sick, um, loss of control, adults are gone, end of the world question mark. So the way that that would kind of manifest itself was we built a CDC room, a mission control room. And in this room, it's hard to see, but right here is a surface table, a Microsoft surface table. So when you could go in, you could manipulate the room through that table. Um, all the images that are on the wall are like real-time images that are coming in from a variety of uh, stills that we have, uh, different things that are being captured in the field, different interactions. The uh, dotted patterns up there represent uh, clustering of actual players during the, the gameplay. So when you would come into this room, if you walked into it on day one, and then you came back a few hours later, you came back the next day, the room was constantly changing. And it was moving through this arc, so it start to get a little more. It start to get darker, uh, you know, and darker and darker and darker in terms of the tone, in terms of what was happening. But then it would pull back, you know, when people would start to fight the disease and make improvements with, you know, in terms of fighting it. Um, I'm going to play something really quickly here for you to give you an idea of what the, the base level experience is like uh, that was done by a fan video uh, that I got afterwards. So it's uh, somebody just was into the experience and they, they shot it. So I'll show that and then I'll kind of walk through the, the other aspects of it.
That was actually really cool. I always love when you get like participatory presence. You have no idea what somebody's doing with something, and then they send it to you. Um, so uh, let me get back to where I was. So effectively, that showed like the experience of what the um, this mission control room was like, and I'll kind of just walk you through it so you have a context of what you just saw. Um, so we released into the wild 50 mobile phones. Those mobile phones were NFC compliant uh, phones, which is near field communication. Basically, what that means is that they had tags similar to RFID, except with NFC, you don't have to engage or turn on your camera or necessarily turn on an app. The device is aware and can recognize the tag and initiate all kinds of really interesting things, phone calls, uh, links, media, all kinds of interesting stuff. So we released 50 of these phones into the wild. The phone had a locked application on it. Uh, the phone could take calls in, could not make calls out, and it had a locked application that would effectively, it was a morality app. So it would ask the user questions like, your wife is sick, do you let her in, yes or no? And then as you made your way through the application, the, uh, the, the story, uh, you know, like the, uh, it would question, it would, became more challenging in terms of what it was asking you. And then it would ask you to do a simple interaction, you know, like take a picture of somebody with their eyes closed or shoot some video with a certain call to action. Um, they had hand cranks, so they were just kind of passed out. 17 of them never came back. 33 of them did. Then again, you know, it is very much a, kind of a swag kind of culture. A lot of things are being given away for free. People walked with 17 of the phones. Um, they were Nexus S phones, um, and Google had given me 50 of them to make use of because uh, they were very interested in this idea of how storytelling could be used with NFC. And so we did like a 600-tag deployment in Park City of NFC tags. So everything from the golden objects to different um, things that people would encounter uh, within uh, – a gallery space that I did all had connection to these NFC tags. What was interesting, and you could see it in the one shot in the video, when somebody would bring one of the phones back and actually sit it down, sit a Google phone on top of the Microsoft tablet, which uh, the Surface, which I think is kind of cool, it, we did this, we wrote software that would allow people to effectively uh, see all the media that had ever been shot with that phone. So the phones became this living, breathing tapestry of what was going on in the actual festival. So you bring it back, you'd set it down, and then you could see all the people who had touched that phone. Yes? How did you charge the phone back? It was... We didn't... Complete, well, that's probably why we lost 17 of them. They did, they, did have ma- they did have messages on the back that said, you know, if you find this phone, please return this. This is part of an experience. You know, it had, it had messaging on it. But um, I think in, in terms of some of the, the core elements, I took a lot away from this experience in terms of better ways to message certain things in terms of the gameplay, better ways to make the calls to action clearer, and then a better understanding of how to run something in a live context like this. Um, so, so basically, uh, what was interesting about the mobile application is we got every time somebody did a handshake with it, meaning that the phone was turned on, any time it was given to somebody else, we would know where it was geo- geographically. So we got to see how far they went into the, the more morality questions, how they answered those questions, how that changed over the face of time. And then we were able to kind of pull all kinds of really interesting data points from it. So uh, when the bottles of water were found, and you saw this in the thing, when somebody would touch the bottle of water to the surface table, the whole room would change. So it would recognize that it just saved 100,000 lives, and then the room would go into a, 
a different state. It would kind of create a different element within the story. These bottles were by far the most popular thing that we did. The phones were the most successful thing that we released. The next most successful thing were the scarcity elements of these collectible bottles that were done by a well-known illustrator, graphic artist. All 50 of those were found. You know, they, they became coveted objects. So that was, uh, that was something that was interesting. Um, I did a, uh, a side room that was like kind of um, that involved all these photographs with people with their eyes closed. So I did 50 portraits with people with their eyes closed. Um, the only when you would go into the room, it was totally black, and you'd have to use flashlights to kind of move through the room, and it created a really kind of eerie effect. Um, there were books that I did because um, you could navigate the room with a smartphone, but for those people that didn't have smartphones, I wanted them to be able to make a correlation between the golden objects that I mentioned, that were 50 of them hidden all throughout Park City, directly related to memories attached to each of these people who were actually in the room. And so what you started to realize when you flipped through the book was that there was a correlation and a connection between the memory of these objects, the people, and then you could start to see how the virus actually spread. Um, the, uh, that's an example of the NFC tag. When you would tap it, you know, it would, it would launch media. The, 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 um, the bottles launched a certain type of media. Um, but also when somebody went up to where the eyes were all closed and had the phone in their hand, they would go up to somebody's eyes that were closed and all of a sudden on the phone their eyes would open. That person's eyes would open on the phone. And then it would drill down to a, a story about that person and, and start to connect the people that were in the room. This is an example of the uh, very inexpensive golden objects that we had that were uh, all spray-painted gold. Um, but they had a variety of tagging on them, hashtags, barcodes, a variety of ways that people could check them in. Uh, this is an early prototype of the, the connected toy that we played with. Uh, in its stomach is a camera. In its eye is a viewfinder, a slide viewfinder, analog. Uh, in its arm is an MP3 player, and in its foot is a thumb drive. So... It could actually, it, kept, it would capture what it, it got and then we'd be able to dock and you could pull it off it. But the idea was in the story, one of the themes within the, the, the story world is um, the adults, when they contract this virus, um, they develop like the world's worst head cold and it, it forms like a call around their faces and then it fills with like an embryonic fluid and they become faceless. So anytime that the, uh, the kids confront them, and if they kill one of them, that immediately aborts off and they're, they're left to see who they've actually killed. You know? And so they're against, it could be their family members, could be people they know from the community. So it's like kind of a play on a mythology of zombies, but in kind of a different direction because all the adults exhibit hive mind-like abilities. And what they do is they, uh, they kind of like secrete over these inanimate objects that have value to the kids. And the kids are drawn to them because they're like intoxicating. They're like a drug. And so when the kids touch them, they become this euphoric exchange. And, and then uh, they use it as the, like this way to flood them with like memories and different manipulation in order to capture them, in order to manipulate them. And so I was interested with these bears is, is like, could I pass these out in a festival? And what, what's that moment of recollection look like? And can I capture it? And I got it out of doing these cool little slides that had like stories on them. So when somebody would get the bear, I got all this footage of like, people are like, what is this thing? You know, and then they'd start to bring it closer when they would realize they could look into the eye. And then I would get this moment of recollection that I then pushed back through the experience. But doing this and seeing how people handled the objects and how they interacted with them, 
then was one of the points that we expanded upon within the script in terms of that interaction and how it informed the logic and the way in which these worked in the real world came back into what we were doing in the story. Uh, the 20 actors, as I mentioned, that were scripted with Twitter, some of them burned out, five lived. Those five made their way to a rec center where there was a generator that led right into some really fun role-playing that we did uh, on the last day of the 120 hours, where Sundance let us run across some of their channels, their official channels, and we started to role-play about how the airport was closed, how the shuttles were running late. You know, we kind of pushed our narrative directly into you know, what Sundance was doing as a normal channel, and it led to uh, a secret performance with uh, Kid Koala, uh, who's a well-known DJ. And uh, there was a fun pillow fight. But uh, everybody that kind of made their way from, um, you know, who had been playing the game in and around Park City. Um, and then we streamed a bunch of stuff online, and it, it was a lot of fun. And then as I go forward, I'll be doing Pandemic uh, 2.0 in Europe uh, later, not later this year, but later in the year, next year. And then also taking it into New York. Um, so I think the big takeaways from this were there were things that were very successful for me and other things that were incredibly difficult to manage and very time-consuming and really kind of questioned whether it, it made sense to do or not. Um, I think elements of the scavenger side worked well, but then there was a challenge of like how far away do we place things, how close are things, how easy are they to find. Then there's a culture there, like I said, in terms of the film-going culture. Not to mention thing, it snows a lot. So there's a lot of snow, so there's not necessarily people going off the beaten path. And then there's just so much going on there. So I, I think in some ways some of the mechanics of, and one note that I forgot to mention that was the most valuable and most important of the whole experience was when somebody would unlock a location, we also would let them unlock phone numbers of those 50 phones. So all the people that were online were then able to call into the phone numbers and reach somebody that happened to have that phone in Park City. And that was by far the most golden aspect of the whole thing because you had people that were calling from all over the world reaching somebody on the phone who answered it and then like freaking out and saying, oh my God, you got to go here, you got to go here. There's this golden thing, you got to go find it. And then they were working with them and driving them and that was like the best part of the whole thing. It was that human interaction between two people who did not know each other. They'd get on the phone, it was like pillow talk for some of them. They'd just start yakking away to each other, asking what the festival was like, and then helping them maneuver to go and find the object and then bring it back to the mission control space. So that was probably, the, the personal touch points were always the most valuable. You know, where somebody was handing something to somebody else, or somebody was interacting with somebody in a way that maybe broke down those barriers. Those were the most valuable aspects of it. So uh, I am going to shift in. Does anybody have any questions about pandemic? I have. Do I still have time? Yeah, I was going to say, first, let's make it personal. Okay, go ahead. Uh, uh, the budget on this was uh, $20,000 uh, in terms of, yeah, $20,000, and then I got probably about a quarter of a million in kind technology wise. Mm-hmm. What was the main kind of positioning that you used to get the 5,500, you know, the, the Fortune 50 companies interested in that project? Uh, some of it was they had read about it, had found out about it. Others was me just looking and saying, wow, this has a real nice application that could apply to other services, other companies, you know, other parties. So, so were you pitching to them? Like, 
In some cases, yes. In other cases, they came to me. It just really depended. Um, so, uh, yes. I'm really interested how you mentioned um, like, the story not being resolved instantly because everyone was interested. How did you kind of stagger the objects and the, the... Well, some, some of it was like we had a really cool kind of dashboard element where we could monitor everything that was going on with the gameplay, you know, and, and, and the story and who had found what and where and all the data points. Um, some of it was kind of what's known as like a puppet mastering, you know, part of it, you know, like where we were kind of helping, like if there was something that wasn't necessarily being found in some way or, you know, cause certain things we put too far out of the way. So then we had to go and get it and bring it back into the space and make it easier for people to find. So there was always kind of a little bit of a touch, but uh, there, what I tried to do through this, and I think maybe you can see it, like what's important to me is a consistency with the elements, even though we didn't have much money, I wanted to make sure there was a consistency across all of it because a lot of this work gets killed by lack of style, like a style guide across it, you know, and then as you have people who are contributing stuff, it becomes even more challenging. So it's really important to, to have a very clear definition and feel and look of what you want. So I really took a lot of time to kind of create that design aesthetic that runs across it because I think it's really important because this type of work is very quickly ridiculed and very quickly judged and people don't understand the budgetary constraints. They don't understand the, the, the way they expect it to be as good as the main property, your anchor property. So, you know, taking the time to do that. But um, I can talk more specifically about some of the other design elements. Um, but uh, I do want to get to the second part of this too. But yes, go ahead. I just wonder if uh, you were able to stop the pandemic. No. No, they weren't able to stop the pandemic. That was actually a, a, a part where um, they could have, they got close to, um, and it didn't. So that created a degree of frustration. And it created a degree of like, as I go forward in some of the design, I'm changing some of the ways in which they can stop it and then how I restart it. Um, because uh, ideally the game would continue kind of a little closer together in terms of that next implementation. So like Pandemic 1.0 would have been quickly followed by a subsequent you know, 1.5 release of it, but I didn't have the resources or the bandwidth to necessarily do that. So, um, so there were definitely uh, the way something culminates is incredibly important. You know, it's, it's, it's actually probably more important than how it starts. You know, it's like if you can get them in, you make sure that that experience rewards. It rewarded really well for the people who were there on the ground. I think it frustrated, in some cases, some of the people that were online. I think that was compounded in a number of different ways. I think uh, it was so vibrant in its design when they were communicating all the way through that being able to stream and bring them into that last part was almost anticlimactic in some ways to as, as valuable as it was. I I think what would have been better is if I left the 50 phones roam throughout the party and people could have continued to talk to people at the party. That would have been a very simple way to kind of continue that and, and people would have been really excited about it. Um, but, uh, you know, that's kind of a takeaway there. Uh, any time, I guess. Well, a lot of the feedback was captured into the data that we pulled. So we pulled in comments, we pulled in tweets, we pulled in uh, the check-ins, we pulled in, you know, like we had this really rich data set. And what's interesting about data is I can take that, I can replay the whole thing again. You know what I mean? I, I could replay it in like a day or I could replay it over five days or I could replay it in two minutes, you know, and it just speed by with all the assets and everything. So, yes. How big is the data? We probably had over... A, 
I want to say when we looked at it, there, there were probably, I think maybe, maybe, maybe 20, 30,000 tweets. I think there were over 50,000 photographs. Um, there was probably close to a million points of data you know, because it was, it was making use of a variety of things. In some of, the, in some of the acts, we actually went out and pulled stuff from, uh, from the, uh, the web in general. You know. We've done. We've used it in a bunch of different ways. I, th I think as we kind of go forward, the, the challenge is figuring out the best ways to collect the data that we need from the social change aspect of the project. Um, but uh, we were able to kind of look at it, and I was, a bit, I was able to gauge how long people engaged with certain things. Especially, the phones had really great data associated with them. The other stuff became a little more um, just normal web-based data. You know, like the number of tweets or the, the number of uh, check-ins or things along those lines. Um, but uh, in the design of the moving forward, I'm kind of changing a bunch of the ways in which we're kind of collecting the data and, and also kind of playing with uh, some of the design elements. And there's a little bit more of a scarcity kind of design that's coming into the 2.0 version of it. Um, but uh, And we're working on ways to better kind of generate the data that we want, more meaningful data, and then also collect it. So... That's all part of the process. So do I have time to go into the second part? Or? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. okay. So um, we're going to switch into a bit of an activity that that's prepared for us. Every speaker will be doing this. So yeah. Oh, oh I, wanted to, I wanted to show one thing really quickly, though. Um, the, uh, this is kind of playing off of the, kind of the rules of uh, engagement um, and uh, kind of looking at what you classically have in these projects in terms of audience. And I, I think that actually there's uh, a lot of room for improvement with this, and I would argue that the reason that the, there's so many passive is because uh, storytellers haven't necessarily embraced the audience in a, in a meaningful way in terms of telling stories with them. Um, I'm always trying to find a way in the design to kind of create this infinity loop. It's like the ultimate. It's like the desire. You know, can I get it to the point where I can pass it off to the audience? They can become collaborators, and they can continue to do it. And so in the, the thing that I was going to run just really quickly uh, was a very participatory project that I just finished in October, um, which is part of a trilogy that I'm doing on participatory stories. I became really interested in what does it take to really tell a story in the 21st century, and I wanted to try to do more co-creative work. So um, Robot Heart Stories, it just very simply, uh, tells the story of a robot, a female robot who's crash-landed in Montreal and needs to make her way to Los Angeles. Um, the two uh, at-risk uh, fifth-grade classes move the robot, literally move the robot from point A to point B. Those classes use history and math and geography and science and collaborative uh, problem-solving, creative writing to dictate where the, the robot went. The robot is, uh, is a little plush toy that's connected, broadcasts its location, has a lot of really kind of... Um, it's tactile, and the kids actually ended up naming the toy. That was all part of it, naming the robot. So what would happen would be they would uh, tell stories. It was all based off their curriculum that they were working on in school, and I was interested in kind of creating an umbrella event that could happen that was a media literacy event. And so the kids in L.A. were studying science, and the kids in Montreal were studying um, art and communication. And so together they, they helped move the robot. So, for instance, if they said they wanted the robot to go to Mount Rushmore and have tea with you 
unicorns. The, um, the team that we had, to, uh, a photographer and a videographer, would take the robot and actually travel to Mount Rushmore, actually set the robot there, take a picture, and they did all these really amazing shots where the robot's floating and doing all these different things that's driven by the kids. The value of that was the kids knew that they had named a robot and they knew that the robot existed in the real world. Totally changed the whole thing. I could have done it with Photoshop, could have easily done that, but it would have taken away that sense of discovery, that sense of mystery, that sense of something, some degree of ownership. What became really kind of fascinating around the project is uh, with the kids in, in uh, Montreal and in L.A., they were two classes, but then we started to get classes uh, in other parts of the world that participated. We had an autistic class that used it, and uh, we had two different kind of ways that you could participate if you were outside the project. Um, one was uh, a little robot that you could print out and assemble, and the other was a coloring one that you could color and you could write what you were passionate about on it. These robots were very simple ways to kind of keep a consistency in terms of the style and what we wanted. So somebody immediately could do it and they were right in the framework of what we were working with and then they could enhance it. So the idea is, in the story, the backstory is the robot is driven by creative, creativity and passion. That's what powers her. Um, and the kids are trying to figure out that. They're trying to figure out and discover what powers are. They're trying alternative energy sources. They're trying all kinds of things. But what was great was we ended up with, I guess, close to 500 um, submissions from all over the world. People would, you know, like somebody put it on their dog's head, you know, uh, with a little picture of the dog. Other people, you know, people just did all kinds of things with it, which was really great. An autistic class used uh, the coloring book ones and they, um, they wrote something they were passionate about and then they went to the library and they matched it to a book and the teacher wrote to me and told me it was the first time the kids ever took out their own books. So I thought that that was really cool. And then an English as a second language class used it, took it home and with their parents did an out, outside of school activity where they dressed it in traditional garb and brought it back in and had stories about their culture and their food and all kinds of things. So a lot of people just kind of took it and used it um, under that kind of umbrella of what we were doing. But I think what was kind of fascinating about it is you get like really cool things where all of a sudden somebody takes the design elements of what you have, and this is from Sweden, and somebody took the time to, to do a little knitted version of it. This all happened over a 10-day period with just literally uh, the collaborators I worked with came from tweets that I kind of put out there and said, hey, I'm doing this crazy project. Because the one thing I forgot to mention that was like the biggest hook of this is that the kids, their artwork, the stories, and the robot itself will actually return to space. So I'm working with NASA, and they'll actually be launched into space at the beginning of next year. So I wanted to make it so when the kids looked up into the night sky, they realized how far their imaginations could carry them. And so um, it had that other kind of element to it. So I sent out these tweets that said, hey, who wants to be a part of uh, a, um, uh, this at-risk kids, a, a robot, and an actual space launch? And a number of different people, David came back, and a number of different people uh, you know, came back and we had like 50 different people who were col collaborating with us from eight different countries in a variety of ways. Some people collaborated with just a few ideas. Other people were hands-on for days, weeks, you know, the whole time. But um, when I kind of step back and look at it, this is part of a trilogy. The second one involves like, it's called Wish for the Future. It involves the Somebody makes a wish, and then somebody grants it with a story, and it's all about the generation of collective narrative. Those stories that are granted are buried in the time capsule for 100 years. The time capsule is actually buried underground. It transmits back until its batteries die. 
reminders to the people who granted wishes, what they actually granted. And then the last one is a message in the bottle that involves kids creating flotation devices that have uh, geolocational devices within them and uh, temperature gauges, and they set them sail with like a message, and they're able to track them, and it's like a message in the bottle theme, so they're, they're learning about oceanography and all kinds of things like that. The reason I bring this up is I've often felt like the work that I do is very much about audiences of tomorrow, and so I really wanted to see what it was like to collaborate with audiences of tomorrow. So it was an amazing, exhilarating thing to be led by a group of fifth graders in terms of how uninhibited they were in terms of their creativity. And it was very telling in terms of just the the passion that they had for the project and those points of ownership. So I think when you guys think about the design of what you do, think about where that value lies. Think about what's going to be valuable for somebody. Leading multi-platform storytelling. Welcome to another Story Labs podcast. For more info, go to storylabs.us.